turn to John chapter seven this morning. This is gonna be no different for our online audience as we continue in our series that we've entitled The Gospel of John, looking at the message and miracles of Jesus through the lens and through the eyes of the Apostle John. We find ourselves in John chapter seven this morning, and we're gonna be looking at verses one through 24. And as we do, we come to a time of great conflict in Jesus's life. What we're gonna learn is that the conflict comes from those pesky uh, and uh, feisty Pharisees, but we're also gonna see that uh, some of the pushback comes from people we never would have imagined were going to hurt Jesus and bring him great scorn. In fact, in our passage today, we're gonna see how Jesus's families interact with Jesus. And what I wanna do is look at the life and experience of Jesus and begin to make some parallels to our own lives. And so let's look to our passage this morning. Now, as the more I spend time with Jesus in the reading of his gospels, I come to a place, and I, I just want you to go with me with this for a moment, to a place of wondering what Jesus was thinking, humanly speaking. Yes, we know he was all divine, but we also know he was all human. And I wonder what his humanity might have been thinking as he gets these responses from the people around him. Now let's remember, Jesus is divinity incarnate. He came to earth on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost. He's helping people with all kinds of temporal needs. He's healing people. He's taking away demons. He's even raising people from the dead. Jesus is doing a lot of great stuff, and the response he gets is very, very cold, and in fact, hostile. Now, the prophet Isaiah said uh, that we would not esteem him when he came. John says that his own people did not receive him in John chapter 1. But who would have thought his own family, his flesh and blood, uh, would have been a part of that as well? You see, this morning, we're going to look at three truths, and then my desire is to dispel two lies that the world tells us. You see, I want to bring you hope this morning. I want to bring you peace. I want to make sure that you walk out of here with a greater level of confidence than which you came into this place. I want to make sure that you know you are on the victorious side of this incredible battle between good and evil. You see, what Jesus is going to tell us amidst all of the conflict that he has overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, never forget that. Our Jesus, our Savior, says that he has overcome the world. And so when troubles come, whether they're close to home or from a stranger, you and I need to know that if Jesus is for us, then who can be against us? Now, the text opens up, if you'll look in verse 1, the words after this. We've seen this a couple different times already in the Gospel of John. It's his timestamp to say what's going on. Well, we know last week that we saw Jesus in John chapter 6 feeding the 5,000 and then preaching about being the bread of life. He's told the people that in order to have any relationship with him, they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And as a result of that, at the end of John chapter 6, we see that many people desert him. In fact, all but the 12 are left or have left. Now, in the text, we are told this all happened after. But how long? Scholars tell us that because of the festival that Jesus was going to be a part of, that this is about six months after the end of John chapter 6. You may want to write that down at the beginning of John chapter 7. Six months later... 
we are told that Jesus is thinking about going up to the festival of the booths. Now, that festival happens in the early spring, and it would be a time where Jesus would go to Jerusalem like everyone else would to celebrate a certain part of Israel's history. We'll get to that in a moment. But what we are told is that this is about a year before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So you may want to write that as a marker because that can help us to understand what is the timeline that Jesus is sharing. Now, now remember, John says, I don't tell you everything that Jesus did. It would take more books than there are in the world to write all the things he does. And so there's no doubt gaps, but these things, John chapter 7 is written that we might believe. Well, what are we to believe? What is the truth that God wants us to receive as we look at the life and example of Jesus Christ? The, the first one is, is that family at times is going to be hostile towards us. You see, what we're going to see in the text is that there are some truths being demonstrated. And the first truth is, is that living as a Christ follower can be tough relationally. So, as I said, the Festival of the Booths, or the Festival of the Tabernacles, is taking place in Jerusalem. Jesus has been with his family in Galilee because he's spending time there. And the reason why, we're told, because there were people out trying to kill Jesus. So he makes his appearances less public because he knows that there's a time and a place of God's choosing for his crucifixion. And so Jesus is hanging with his brothers and sisters and he's spending time with them, getting ready to go to this festival of the booths. The festival of the booths or tabernacles was a commemoration where anyone in the vicinity of Jerusalem would come and celebrate and remember Jesus's faithfulness, God the Father's faithfulness uh, to the nation of Israel. You see, during the time of the Exodus out of Egypt, uh, the Israelites had no place to live. And God provided everything they needed as they lived in tents for 40 years. And so this festival was a seven-day festival that was filled with all types of revelry. And, and the best way to explain it, it's a camping experience for the children of Israel. They're enjoying and remembering what their forefathers did and how God provided for them there. Now, the subject matter goes at Jesus' house this way. His brothers say, uh, we should go up. Let's go camping, Jesus. But there's some sarcasm and some hostility to what Jesus' brothers are saying. You see, it says in the text that Jesus' brothers did not believe. Now, we don't talk a lot about Jesus' earthly brothers and sisters. But according to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, after the virgin birth of Jesus and the marriage of Joseph and Mary, they would consummate their relationship and they would have children. God would bless them with other children. These would be half-brothers and half-sisters of, of Jesus. And they would be the younger ones, of course, Jesus being the first. And if you think that if you were a family member of Jesus, that your faith would be ironclad, think again. The old adage, familiarity breeds content, is no doubt at play here in the life of Jesus' family. Think about how difficult it must have been to be the brother or sister of Jesus. You know, any time that Mary came or Joseph came looking to see who had caused the trouble, Jesus was exempt from it. And so it would have been very hard. And no doubt all the words that were shared, the sibling rivalry that would have taken place, and it fleshes itself out here in our text where it says that they did not believe in him. 
And in fact, they goad him to go to Jerusalem so that people might see him in public fully knowing that there is a warrant out, if you will, for his arrest. And there is a notice that he'll be assassinated if he's found in public. Talk about hatred, hatred from your family. Now, listen, I came from a very loving home where while my brothers are all different, uh, we loved each other and grew up and we had some bad spats from time to time, but uh, but now with one brother gone, uh, I am indebted to my Lord for having the brother that I have still living. And I couldn't imagine coaxing him to go and put himself in harm's way so that his enemies might kill him. But that's exactly what they do. They believe him to be a megalomaniac. They believe him to have a God complex. They, they don't believe in him. And so everything he says and everything he does makes no sense to them. And they've come to hate it and hate him. And so what Jesus does is Jesus says, listen, I, I, I'm going to wait here. You guys go ahead. Now, before we move to the next part of the message, let's stop and see how our lives parallel the life of Jesus. Many of you this morning find yourself as the odd one out in your family, or maybe at your workplace, or maybe in your neighborhood. You have a name about you. You're the weird one. You're the Bible bumper. You are the one who, who has these crazy ideas about who Jesus is and that you can talk with Jesus and walk with Jesus. This man that lived for 2,000 years and who said he died on a cross and resurrected from the grave, and now you're waiting with great expectation that he's going to return and take you to a place that you've never been before. It doesn't take us too much to realize that we're asking people a lot with believing in what we believe in. And it was no different for Jesus. And so I'm talking to the people today who find themselves alone. You're alone in your own family. You're alone in your workplace. You're the only believer as far as the eye can see. And that's a lonely place to be. And maybe that's why you come with great excitement to church because there's no other family around for you. And I would just encourage those that have Christian homes and come from great families not to neglect those that find themselves in a place of hurt like that. To encourage them and invite them over for celebrations so that they too can join you in what it means to have a family that loves Jesus. Now, a couple of things about how Jesus responds. First of all, notice Jesus doesn't repay evil for evil. He could have. He could have brought fire down from heaven. He, he could have caused them all kinds of infirmities, but he doesn't. And brothers and sisters, when you find yourself hurting because of the angst that your family brings to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, be careful that you do not repay evil with evil, but repay it with good. The other thing that I want you to know is that Jesus promised this. Jesus said that as we are in this world and as we believe the words of Jesus, that we will have mothers and fathers fighting with brothers and sisters, that we will have uh, sons and daughters struggling with their moms and dads. Jesus was going to bring division. And so don't be surprised when trials of many kinds come to you when you are a culturally, or, or I'm sorry, a spiritually blended family. You see, Jesus lived it. And Jesus knows what it means to be alone. 
the feeling that it has. And so I want you to uh, continue to persevere. Be patient. The reason why is that as, as a Christian, we have the hope that one day Jesus might save these people. Did you know that many of Jesus' brothers and sisters came to know Christ? In fact, one of his brothers, Jude, wrote one of the books of the New Testament named after him. His brother James is known as the pillar of the church in the book of Acts. And we know, no doubt, that many of them, after seeing Jesus be crucified and then to see him alive, gave their lives to Jesus. My friends, never lose hope. Never lose hope in the opportunity you have to share Christ, no matter how hard it may be, because that may be the time. That may be the opportunity for them to come to know Jesus. Now, the text moves on. And it tells us that our life isn't just going to be tough relationally, especially within the family dynamic. But I want you to also notice that there's a couple other truths. And that is this truth of knowing God's will and his timing is going to show us to be spiritually mature people. Now remember, Jesus doesn't go up to the festival right away. He doesn't want the pomp and circumstance, no doubt. He doesn't want any of the trouble that his brothers might get him into. Uh, Harken back to Joseph and his brothers in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to stay here for a little while. And midway through the festival, Jesus makes his decision that it is the right time and place to go up to Jerusalem and to be a part of the festival. But the text says very clearly he did it privately. And so Jesus goes and he goes right to the temple. And he begins to speak in the temple. Why? Number one, because that's where Jesus said his father's house is. And so he wants to speak in his father's house. Number two, I think even the most hardened of Pharisees would find it difficult amidst the shadow of the Holy of Holies to assassinate Jesus in the temple. And so Jesus is wise beyond this world. And he goes to a place he knows that they can't cause problems. And notice what, what happens he goes at the right time. I, I want you to know that obedience is a twofold process. First, knowing what God's will is, and second, doing it in the proper time and way. If you're like me, you know what God's will is. It's, it's right here in the Word. And we see it, but how often are we rushing past the, the timing or the leading of the Holy Spirit to get to what we want? We, we see that God says we can have it, but we don't wait for it in his perfect times and ways. L let me explain. Young dating couple. Uh, you know what the Bible says about sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage and Fornication is something that's just too much for you to bear. And so instead of, you know the will, but instead of following the will of God, your patience has run out and, and you've given yourself to sin. Know the will of God and wait. How often have we made decisions to forego our giving so that we can go purchase something uh, in this moment, in this time and place, maybe because a neighbor got it or because our desires have gotten the best of us and we've given up on God's timing only to find out that finding ourselves in financial ruin has become a reality. You see, even pastors can do it. I am so blessed because I can be an impetuous pastor. I get so excited about what I believe God's doing for us as a church across our campuses and in the world uh, that I want to do it yesterday. 
And I'm so thankful for elders, wise and prudent elders who are far more at times patient than I am, who say, let's pray and let's wait and see what God wants us to do. You see, brothers and sisters, you wanna be known as a spiritually mature person? Then follow the leading of Jesus, who not only knew the will of his father, but he made a conscious decision to wait until the time was right. There's a third truth that I want you to see. And that's seen in verses 14 through 24. And that is the following. Speaking biblical truth today means we are going to live counter-culturally. So Jesus goes to the temple at the right time and in the right way, and he begins to speak. And as he begins to speak, we know that people don't like what he's saying. Now, there's a varied response and a variety of responses that come, which we'll speak about in a moment. But, but what you see is all kinds of opinions about Jesus. But Jesus is resolute. He knows there's people in that audience that want to kill him, and he speaks truth. He knows that it might damage his earthly reputation, and he speaks truth. He, he, he does not care about the opinions of people. He speaks truth. And brothers and sisters, God has called us to be that way. Now, not to do it in a jerky or rude way, but to do it with grace, seasoned with salt, that our conversation would bring about much fruit to a watching and hurting world around us. And so Jesus speaks truth. Now, the response is twofold. First of all, they respond and they say, how can this man, who has not quoted any rabbi but God himself, how can he have any authority? You see, back in the day, for you to have authority in the temple, you would have to speak about the rabbi you learned under, whether it was Shammai or Hillel in those days or, or many, many others. What, what Jesus does is he says, this is what the Father in heaven says. But they're blown away. He's so learned. Where did this man learn such truths? And we see that you don't need education. You don't need degrees and diplomas to be used by God. I am so very thankful in a God who qualifies the called and doesn't call the qualified. And I've enjoyed with great humility the opportunity that God and yes, you, the people of Village Bible Church have given me, absent of many of the degrees that so many in this world say are important. And so Jesus preaches and teaches with authority. But then he condemns, notice in the text, he condemns them because he says that they're all mad that he healed a man on the Sabbath. And he says, listen, we circumcise boys on the eighth day. Every Sabbath, we circumcise children. It's a good thing. Why? Because Moses or the patriarchs founded it in obedience to God. Jesus says, I healed a man. I made him whole. And you say, that's a bad thing. And you want to kill me. Notice what the text says. There's all kinds of opinions about Jesus. Listen to me. When you speak biblical truth to the world around you, there will be a lot of opinions about you, and most will not be good. And you'll be called all kinds of names. You may lose your job. You may lose your place at the high school cafeteria table. You may lose your standing in the community because the world tells us today, if we speak biblical truth, we, you know, the world doesn't say we're demon-possessed or we're hated as Jesus said the world thought of him. But different words are used now. We're hate-filled and bigoted 
and, and we are intolerant of the world around us. Listen, brothers and sisters, take heart. Just as they hated Jesus for speaking the truth, they will do so with us as well. Three truths. Three truths that parallel in our time and in our lives the life of Jesus. Now, what I want to do with the time that I have left is I want to expose two lies. You see, there's two lies in our text that are, that are in the text. They're baked right into it. And we need to know these lies and debunk these lies because in this passage of great conflict, there are two lies that you and I as Christ followers cannot fall into. And the first one being that the variety of opinions about Jesus erodes the veracity or the truthfulness of his claims. One commentary I was reading was incredibly helpful in this, where it said that in chapter 7, there are seven different opinions about Jesus. Six of them are untrue, and only one is true. Follow along in the passage with me. In verse 12, Jesus is called a good man. In verse 12, he's also called the deceiver. He's a learned teacher in verse 15, a paranoid lunatic in verse 20, a great miracle worker in verse 31, a prophet or the prophet in verse 40, and then the Messiah in verse 41. You see, the commentator said, this is true in the 21st century as it is true in biblical times. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus, which begs the question this morning, what is your opinion of him? What do you believe about this Jesus? Now, before you think I better uh, call Jesus the Messiah because I'm going to hurt his feelings or, or I'm going to in some way uh, put a damper on his significance, let me tell you something, you can't touch Jesus. And Jesus isn't concerned about the opinions of people. He knew when he came the world would hate him. But what matters is, is your opinion matters because if you do not by faith believe Jesus to be the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the very declaration that Peter shares six months earlier in John chapter six, you're the Holy One. You have the words to eternal life. If you do not believe that, then listen, you can call Jesus a good teacher. You can say he's a prophet, but any superlative that's less than Lord and Savior, it makes you a sinner without grace. You maybe think you're giving props to Jesus, but saying Jesus is a good teacher is sadly below the line of what Jesus truly is and always will be. Opinions don't matter, except when it comes to your personal opinion about Jesus, when it comes to receiving him as Savior. Have you done that? If not, it's a simple prayer away. The final thing that I want you to see, and I come back to this. Remember, I wonder if Jesus was feeling like the, was it all worth it? And of course it was. He went to the cross. He died for us and brought great, great glory to his father. But I wonder if you're saying that this morning. I believe we live in one of the most hostile times for Americans since the founding of our country. Now, that may be because I live in this generation, but I can assure you that the last 20 years were different than the first 20 years when it came to being a Christ follower. And I think many of you are wondering, is it gonna get any better? And the Bible seemingly says that it won't. 
It won't until he comes back. And so maybe there's a lie that you're believing right now, and just write this down, and I want you to think about this, that walking with Christ can wreak havoc and make one weary in life. Is there havoc being created because of Christ in your life, in your family, in your workplace, in your schools, in your marriage? Are you weary? Are you tired of swimming against the flow? Are you tired of being told that your beliefs are stupid and foolish and downright hate-filled? I I want you to remember that just as Jesus encountered this, he overcame them. And he did so out of love, and he did so evangelizing the world all the way. And how awesome was it that many of the people that said he was demon-possessed and hated Jesus would be the very people that would bow the knee to Jesus one day. And we need to not forget of what we learned in Samaria, that the fields are white with harvest. And so, yeah, it seems like the world's going to hell more and more each and every day. But take heart, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. And because we're followers of his, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And because of that, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in him. And so stand strong, be bold, show courage so that God may use you in mighty ways and, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to be your strength amidst those times of struggle. And you will see just as Jesus did that the message of God and the program and plans of God can never be thwarted.